Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here. And whether you're joining us in person or online, we are extremely grateful that you are joining us today. Today is week four in a series that we're doing called This Changes Everything. And in this series, we are talking all about how there are just some things that happen in our lives that change everything for us. Maybe it was the day that you met your spouse. Maybe it was when you had your first kid. Maybe it's when you got that diagnosis. Maybe it's when you realized that the hole in the end of the pot handle is meant to hold the spoon. <laughs> Changes everything. <laughs> this is exactly how our relationship with God through Jesus is meant to work. In Titus, what we see is that when we encounter Jesus through the gospel, it starts to change everything about our lives. And so today we're going to keep talking about what this means by picking up in Titus chapter 2 in the second half of the chapter. And we're going to see just what it means that Jesus changes everything for us. But before we get into that, let's take a little bit of time and pray together. Father, thank you so much for another opportunity uh, for us to come together and to sing your worship, to look at your words in scripture, uh, to be your people together. We pray this morning for some of the events that we've got coming up. We're thinking about this uh, Parents' Night Out this uh, upcoming weekend. We pray that this is a blessing for families that take advantage of it, that parents may be able to get some time together without kids screaming in the background, uh, and that that may be good for them and good for us as a church. We are thinking about mini golf too, Lord. We're praying specifically that you help new families come to that event and have an experience with us that makes them say, hey, maybe there's something different about this church that I should check out. And in so doing that, Lord, we ask that you help us give them an encounter with you that is life-changing. Pray for our time this morning that you uh, give us a willingness to see what's in your word and that it may sink down deep into our hearts and change our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you're just stepping into the series today, we're looking at the book of Titus. We call it the book of Titus. Originally, when it was written, it was a letter from the Apostle Paul to his good friend Titus, who had been sent to the island of Crete to help the churches there get healthy and strong. And in this letter, Paul is including his instructions and encouragements to Titus to help Titus carry out the task at hand. Now, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we have seen Paul give Titus a lot of instructions. We saw him tell Titus that he needs to appoint leaders at the various churches. We saw instructions on what those leaders should be like. And then last week, we saw this big list of instructions from Paul encouraging Titus on how people within the church should be relating to each other. Now, here's one of the dangers that we can run into when we're confronted with lists of instructions on how to live. All of the instructions that we run into can sometimes make us feel overwhelmed, maybe even a little bit discouraged. Like so far in Titus, we've read, if you want to be a leader, first of all, you need to be blameless. It's not like that's a high bar to set. You need to be hospitable, greedy, not a drunkard. Your family life needs to not be in shambles. And then last week, we saw all of these instructions for older men, older women, younger men, younger women, you know, things like be self-controlled, don't drink too much wine, stop gossiping, be pure, be upright, worthy of respect, temperate, teach what is good. Sometimes we can read things like this 
and feel like the message of the Bible is simply that we need to try harder to be better people. And for many of us, that can be an incredibly discouraging message. Here's what I mean. Uh, I, James Bride, have no athletic ability. Uh, there's just something wrong with my brain. If you were sitting out there and you threw a ball to me, it has just as much of a chance of hitting me in the face as it does of being caught. Actually, more of a chance of hitting me in the face than it does of being caught, which when you're 35 years old, it doesn't really matter. No one's judging me based on my athletic prowess. But when you are 12 years old and all of your little middle school friends are obsessed with sports, it is a different story. You see, my little middle school friends and I, we lived in this neighborhood in Lansing called the Morse Park neighborhood. And Morse Park had a basketball court. And it wasn't a nice basketball court, but the hoops had nets. And if you've ever been to like an inner city basketball court, if the hoops have nets, it's like a big deal. So we would ride our little bikes down to the basketball court and play basketball together. And I will admit, I was the weakest link. They'd like pass me the ball. And if by some miracle I actually caught it, I would make a shot that would go off who knows where, or I'd try and dribble the ball and lose control and give the other side the ball, and my friends would get so annoyed with me. They would be like, James, what the heck? To which I would respond by saying, give me a break, guys. I am trying as hard as I can. To which their little smart aleck mouse would be like, then try harder. <laughs> as a 12-year-old, that's a crushing thing to hear. I was trying as hard as I could to not let them down, but no matter what, I would always come up short. I would drop the ball. Get it? Oh, man, I'm just not winning today with the jokes. When we are not careful in how we talk about passages of scriptures that give us a lot of instructions on how to live, it can be easy to fall into the trap of feeling like little 12-year-old James. Like we are trying as hard as we can, but it's just asking us to try harder, do better, be a better person. A great example of this is last week, one of the themes that came up over and over again in the passage was to be self-controlled. Most of us have places in our lives where we are trying as hard as we can to be more self-controlled, but we just keep coming up short. Maybe it's something simple like you know that you shouldn't keep eating all those cookies. Or maybe it's something more serious like you keep telling yourself that you're not going to look at porn or be on your phone while your kids are around or overspend on Amazon. We know we need to be more self-controlled. We want to be more self-controlled. We're trying as hard as we can, but we just keep falling short. And over time, that can be discouraging. Anyone willing to admit that they've felt that way before? Yeah, a lot of us. So when we read passages like what we read last week, instead of feeling encouraged, we can feel like God is just saying, try harder, be a better person, stop screwing up. Now, part of the problem here is that there is something innate inside of us as humans that assumes that the right way to be good with God is through behaving the right way. You know how this goes. If I, if I live the right way, if I'm a good enough person, if I go to church enough times or give enough money or help enough poor people or follow God's rules close enough, then I'll be right with God. He'll accept me. When I die, he'll be like, you're good to go. Go to heaven. Not only do we see this in the history of world religions where the favor of various gods 
was based on the obedience of the people that followed them. But we see it today. If you go to the mall and you ask someone why they think God should accept them, the most typical answer is still, because I'm a good person. It's very normal for us to think that how we behave is the thing that makes us right with God, which is actually why passages like what we read last week can be so challenging for us because when we're actually confronted with the things that God wants for us and when we're honest about it, we start to say, you know, I might be in trouble. And instead of feeling encouraged or inspired to live more for Jesus, we can feel crushed by the weight of all the expectations that we feel. That's where our passage comes in today. Because in this second part of Titus, chapter 2, Paul starts to tell us about this paradigm-shifting reality of life with Jesus that not only saves us from our failings, but actually helps us as we try and live in a better way. Check it out. This is what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority and do not let anyone despise you. This is only five verses, so we're going to try and pick them apart pretty intensely today. Paul starts this way. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, we're, we're people who are steeped in like 2,000 years of the church's influence on culture. So this might not seem like a revolutionary, life-altering, mind-bending, jaw-dropping statement. But when we really stop to think about what Paul is saying here, this is like mic drop moment in Titus. Because Paul here is talking about the moment when the God of the universe came to earth as a man to show us what God is actually like. In Colossians, Paul talks about this again. He says that the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This matters because whether you were born pagan or Jewish, at this point in time, there were all sorts of misunderstandings about what God was like. But when we look at the person of Jesus, we actually see God. This is huge. And as it turns out, God's not some stingy judge. He's not a quick-tempered, angry deity just waiting for you to screw up. He is a loving God. And much like a shepherd who goes out looking for that one lost sheep, or the woman who tears her entire house apart looking for that one lost piece of gold, God came to earth in search of humanity gone astray. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes God's love. I know I'm doing some deep reading these days. If you haven't read the Jesus Storybook Bible, good theology. It's like Theology 101, Jesus Storybook Bible. You should buy one. Um, but anyways... This is what it says about God's grace, his, his love. It says he has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always 
and forever love. And that's why when Paul is talking about when God came to earth as Jesus, he, refu- he refers to it as the appearing of the grace of God. Grace is this really important word in the New Testament, especially to Paul. At its core, it means undeserved favor. When you read the Bible, what you see is the story of humans turning their backs on God over and over and over again, and a loving God coming after them time and time again to try and bring them back into the fold. Now, if you've got a friend who just keeps betraying you and doing things that are intentionally offensive over and over, at some point, you're kind of like, all right, we're done here. But that is not what God is like. In fact, what you have in this, with the story of humanity, it's not just a bunch of humans turning their back on God and offending him. You've got humanity actively trying to destroy the things that God created and loves. Every harsh word, every act of violence, every time we don't stand up for injustice, every turn from God's ideal is an assault on the people, the places, and the things that God created and loves. And here's the problem. It's not like this is a one-time issue where God said, hey, please stop that. No, this has been our pattern on an individual and a corporate level for all of human history. And if you're sitting there thinking like, yeah, but I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen anything. I've never done anything that bad. I don't think I fit into that category of destroying what God loves. This is why Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The problem with humanity is not just the big things. It's not just the wars. It's not just the global injustices. It's the fact that every little thought and act that goes against God's ideal is just another way that we continue to fracture the way God intended for humanity to be. It's the angry words that make other people unravel emotionally. It's the fact that my iPhone was most likely made by modern day slavery and I really don't care. It's the way that we treat others like a means to an end rather than creations of God. Again and again, we turn our backs on God assaulting the things he cares about and living in a way that is actively against his ideals for the world. So when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, he's saying when Jesus showed up, we were able to see the true extent of the undeserved favor of God. How even though we have been actively rebelling against God and corrupting his good world, he continues to love us so much that he sent Jesus, his very son, to come to earth to show people what God is like, to suffer and die on our behalf, and to bring us back into right relationship with God. We don't deserve it, yet God came to earth for us. The grace of God has appeared. 
This changes everything. And why did the grace of God appear? It's not just because he wants us to see what he's like. It's because he wants to offer us something better than what we found ourselves in. Paul continues, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. I want to dig in really deep here and ask this question. What does it mean that the appearing of God's grace offers us salvation? The answer to this is probably more expansive than we can hit in one setting. In fact, if you read the New Testament, there's like tons of metaphors and descriptions of what this salvation means. And each of those different metaphors and descriptions carries its own nuance. But if we just stick with this passage to try and answer that question, we see three aspects of what it means that Jesus offers us salvation. First, in verse 14, Paul says that Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. This is the first part of salvation, that Jesus offers to redeem us from wickedness. Now, don't read that word wickedness and automatically jump to like Hitler, because when we do that, we have this tendency to maybe disqualify ourselves from being included in the term. We think, yeah, Hitler. Hitler was wicked. I'm not like Hitler. Therefore, I'm not wicked. Well, not only is that not great logic, but it's not really what this word wickedness was meant to mean. Wickedness, or as it's translated elsewhere, lawlessness, it's really just a term used to talk about the effects of the pull that we feel to live into ways that are contrary to God. It certainly includes the horrific acts of truly deranged and horrible people like Hitler, but here it's meant to communicate the influences that we are all steeped in in this world that pull us away from God and his ideals, or even those innate desires that we have that make us want to act self selfishly rather than selflessly. It's like how my natural desire when something doesn't go my way is to blow up in anger, or the fact that when we run into someone who doesn't look like us, dress like us, talk like us, our natural inclination is to view them with suspicion or maybe even hostility. It's the fact that for the most part, we're driven by greed and almost never care about the terrible injustices that fuel our cheap products and the way that our immense consumption is destroying God's good earth bit by bit. It's how our political systems tend to pit us against each other rather than working for our own good, and they create wars and division. These influences, these natural inclinations that we all have, when they go uninterrupted, they accumulate and work together to create a world that is hard and broken and often evil. This is wickedness. And it is the way of life that all of us find ourselves steeped in. It's an ever-present influence that tries to get us to act in ways that are corrupt and destructive to relationships. It's a deep-seated brokenness that we have a hard time breaking free of. And Paul says, Jesus offers to redeem us from that. If you've been going to church for a long time, you probably have heard how that word redeem, it's used in Greek to talk about um, someone who purchases, purchases a slave out of slavery and then sets them free. That is totally true. It was a word that was often used uh, to talk about purchasing someone out of slavery and setting them free, but it doesn't have to always have that technical sense. It can also just mean to rescue someone 
which is what it actually means here. Because whether we want to admit it or not, while God is a God of immense love, he is also a holy and righteous God, a God who desires to make wrong things right and who does hold us accountable for our actions and pursues justice on behalf of all that he has created. That puts us in a pickle. Because like we said, we all have played a role in the wickedness that Paul's talking about here. And as such, we not only stand as people who have a severed relationship with God, but we stand as people who have been actively assaulting the things that God loves. Whether it's because what we've done or what we've left undone, we have failed to live into God's desires and have contributed to the brokenness and wickedness of the world. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was in fact paying any debt that we've incurred from our part in the wickedness. He was making any restitution that's being demanded for our wrongdoing so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. That's why in passages like Romans 3, it says that God justifies us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This shows God's righteousness so that he, mu so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul's saying there in Romans that Jesus does what's necessary for God's justice to be carried out while also being the justifier of the one who did that injustice. Jesus rescues us from the penalties of sin and wickedness. But it's not just that he rescues us from the penalties. He also rescues us from its power over us. Again, in Romans, Paul says, for we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Because we know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Paul's idea here is amazing. He says, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're actually united to him. So our old selves the ones that were held captive by wickedness and sin, when we place our faith in Jesus, they died with Jesus' death. And we rose into a new life with Jesus so that we are no longer held captive under the power of sin and wickedness. This is what Paul is saying. Wickedness, it ruins everything, and we find ourselves trapped in it. But Jesus has made a way for us to be set free from it. And not just that, when he rescues us from wickedness, he plops us down into a new people. This is the second aspect of salvation that we see here. Jesus redeems us from wickedness and gives us into a new people. It's a terrible illustration, but hang with me. Imagine you're standing in front of like a, a herd of ravenous lions. They're so hungry, they're looking at you like, mm, I'm hungry. That there's a tasty human. And then someone swoops in with a helicopter and they pick you up and they take you away. But instead of taking you and dropping you off at a camp with warm food and a bed and people to care for you, they just do like three or four circuits around the Serengeti and then drop you back off in that same herd of ravenous, hungry lions. 
It's not really saving, is it? If you're just getting dropped back off in the same circumstances that you were before. Terrible illustration, I know. But it, <laughs> but it helps make the point. A necessary part of salvation is bringing people out of a world ruled by wickedness and bringing them into a people who are trying to be ruled by God. It's not just enough to say you're forgiven of your sin. We also have to be brought into this new people of God where together we're trying to live for him. This is why Paul writes that uh, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. The second part of salvation is that Jesus redeems us and is making us into his people. In Philippians, Paul describes um, people who have Jesus as citizens of heaven. The contrast here is with citizens of Rome or citizens of this world. The idea being that when Jesus pulls us out of wickedness and his power and penalties, he places us in a new people, people who live under the rules and ways and culture of heaven. Now, we got to pause and ask a super important question. If we're saved into a new people, people who are supposed to act like citizens of heaven, why is the church so messed up? <laughs> I love the way Tim Keller describes this. Uh, in one of his books, he quotes Frederick Douglass, who's talking about why so many freed slaves that he knows um, were struggling to live like they were free. And he said that you can take a person out of slavery, but it takes a long time to take the slavery out of a person. His point was, if you lived your whole life being told that you were a slave, treated like a slave, punished for thinking that you were anything but a slave, that has a lasting and hard-to-break impact on our psyche. It's similar in the church. We are freed from sin. We are freed from wickedness. But not only are we a people who still live in a broken world, we are a people who are still dealing with the long-lasting impacts of sin in our lives. We're going to get to this a little bit later in the sermon today. But the reality is, if you have Jesus, you are saved. You are freed from sin. But because of our brokenness and the brokenness of the world, we won't totally experience what that's like until Jesus returns and makes all things new. And in the meantime, we're given this community that we try to together live into this new reality that we've been given. It's not perfect, but we get to work at it together. Which leads us to the third part of salvation. Part of salvation is that we're redeemed from wickedness. Part is that we're brought into a new, a new people. And then the third part is that we are taught to live a new life. Our passage today says that Jesus is purifying us and making us his very own, his very own people, eager to do what is good. So the third part of salvation we see is that we are being taught to live a new life. He is helping us be a people eager to do what is good. A people who are living lives of devotion and worship to God, a life of love, a life of compassion and care for the oppressed, a life that's being shaped by Jesus in all that we do. It's a life where the gospel changes everything. Now those last two points, that we're saved into a new people and that we're saved into a new life, that's actually what Paul was trying to encourage the Cretan Christians towards in passages like last week, where he went people group by people group 
uh, through how they should be trying to live out this new life within this new people. And so Paul, he really sums up everything from last week in verse 12 when he says it, that it, it being the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Uh, I use, I've used this Matt Chandler quote before, but Matt Chandler, he says, God loves us where we are at, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. The idea being that God has come to where we are, he has come to earth, he has offered to redeem us from wickedness, put us into a new people, and is now teaching us to live a new life in him. He is shaping and molding us as we live into this reality of being his new people. Now at the beginning we mentioned grace's undeserved favor, but actually when you look at the writings of Paul, we also see that grace has this sense that is an influence, a force, maybe even a power that acts on us and helps us align our lives more with God. And we see this clearly in our passage that kind of ties everything together. The way God's undeserved favor in Christ works is that it not only saves us, but it's actually, his grace is actually working to transform us. That's why Paul says it, it being the grace of God, teaches us. So this grace of God that has appeared, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's incredible to think about, isn't it? As we're trying to live as God's people, His grace is at work. It's not saying try harder. It's saying, let me help you live as God's people. I want to finish out this by pointing to the idea of this present age because this present age is going to tie all of this together. Paul grasped the reality that Jesus showed up in grace and that it changed everything. He offered us a way to be saved from sin and wickedness. And part of that salvation is that at some point, Jesus is going to return. And this time, he doesn't appear in grace. He appears, as our passage says, in glory. If you remember back to the Exodus story, uh, Moses, he wanted to see God's glory more clearly. So God picked him up, set him in the cleft of a rock, was like, don't look until I'm done passing by me, and then you can glimpse my glory as it's already passed by. So Moses gets to glimpse God's glory as it has already passed by. And the point there is that if Moses had saw the full force of God's glory, it would have been so overwhelming, so powerful, so opposed to any unrighteousness that Moses may have had that it might have destroyed Moses. And even just glimpsing God's glory affected Moses so much that he basically got a God's glory sunburn and he had to wear a veil over his face so that when people looked at him, they wouldn't be impacted by the glory of God that was radiating off of him. It's a weird story. <laughs> but in it, we see that the unfiltered glory of God is amazing but it is nothing to joke about. And the differentiation between Jesus appearing in grace, as Paul describes in verse 11, and then coming back in glory, as is described here, 
It's the idea that when Jesus came in grace, it was incredible. But his coming in glory is going to be a whole different experience where we are so confronted with Jesus' raw righteousness, his raw holiness, his raw love and power, that unless we are recipients of Jesus' salvation through grace, this is going to be a terrifying and not so good experience. See, the biblical idea is that Jesus is going to return at some point. There will be a judgment of all people, and then after that, God will make the new heavens and the new earth. And the idea here is that with the new heavens and the new earth, all the bad will pass away and everything will be recreated into this vision of what things were meant to be. And those who have Jesus will spend this perfect eternity with God. We as Christians, we sit uniquely between the appearing of God's grace and the appearing of his glory. Fully made God's people, but waiting for a time where we will get to fully live into what that's like. So in the meantime, we wait and we try by the power of his grace to lean into how he's trying to shape our lives to be more in line with what life is going to be like after the coming of his glory. This is what motivates Paul. He's saying, you've actually been given something far better than you could ever deserve. And while its fullness has not fully appeared, in the meantime, we try to live into this glorious reality of what it's going to be like with God for eternity. Now, here's what this means for you. First, as people who are saved from wickedness and saved into God's people and, and being taught what it looks like to live for God, we not only model the fact that we're forgiven, we are meant to model what it looks like to be God's people. Our example is supposed to show why eternity with God is something that all people should want. That's why in the verses from last week, Paul was so concerned about living in such a way that doesn't ruin our witness. He said things like, so that no one will malign the word of God, and that so those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The concept is, if you're actually saved out of wickedness and sin and brought into God's people and being taught this new amazing life with God, we are then meant to model this to every person around us. Now, this is a huge responsibility, which is why it is so important for us to be actively trying to let the grace of God empower and teach us to live for Jesus. In the history of the church, there have been these things called means of grace, which we understand basically as ways that we intentionally place ourselves in a position that is more open to the influence and power of God's undeserved favor in our lives. These are things like prayer, reading scripture and studying it, worship, being deeply involved in Christian community, intentional obedience, serving gratitude. These are things that are meant to put us in a position of being open to the teaching and shaping of God's grace in our lives. It's like if I want to get a suntan, I can't do that by sitting in my basement and playing video games all day. I actually have to put myself in a position where the sun can have an impact on me. 
I'm not saying that God can't get to you wherever you're at in life. But there are things that we can do that intentionally put us in a place where we are more open to God's grace so that it can shape the way that we live. And as Christians, we need those things in our lives. So if you're like, man, I don't even know where to start. Let me encourage you with these these three practices. First, corporate worship. Make corporate worship a part of your life, like on a weekly basis. Because when we show up here and when we sing songs to God and when we encounter the word of God in scripture and people trying to expound it in sermons, we're putting ourselves in a position where we're open to reflecting on God's love for us and we're trying to hear what it is that God wants us to be doing. That's life shaping and changing. Another thing that you should really think about adding into your life is even if it's only 10 minutes a day, read a little bit of scripture and reflect on it in prayer. If you don't know what that looks like, please find time to sit down with me. I'd love to share what that could look like for you. But what you're doing in that is you are actively trying to sit down and say, God, remind me of something that I need to know. And then responding back to him in a way that's open to his work in your life. Then the third practice I want to encourage you towards is just intentional obedience. So often we think of obedience in terms of what we're trying not to do, but it's really important that we start to ask the question, all right, God, what is it that I should be actively trying to do? This could be as simple as finding ways to serve in church. It could be looking at your neighbors and saying, how can I show them an amazing, undeserved, outrageous compassion and love? could be looking at your coworkers and asking the question, how can I be modeling Jesus for them today? It could be finding some justice issue that God cares deeply about and you getting involved in it. Whatever it is, it's finding ways to be intentionally trying to act out what God wants of us. Finally, as we think about this amazing gospel we encounter in Titus 2, it's important to remember that we live between the appearing of God's grace and the future appearing of his glory. This means nothing is going to be perfect until Jesus comes back, including you. Be released from the guilt and shame that comes with falling short. Why? Because while we wait for Jesus to return, it is still true, even when we screw up or fall short, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This changes everything. As we wrap up, if you've never taken the step to trust in Jesus to provide this salvation, I want to make sure that we create space for you to do that today. It starts with you recognizing your deep need to be saved from sin and wickedness and seeing that Jesus is your only hope. And then asking him, Jesus, save me. I trust in you to do what I can't do for myself. I want to be your person, shaped by your purposes. I am committing myself to you. That's where it starts. We're going to pray together. We're going to include some time in that prayer for you to pray that if you want to today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we're thankful for this passage how it encourages us to see that it's not just about behaving the right way, it's about the fact that you came in grace to save us, to put us into a new people, 
to teach us your way of life, Lord, I pray that we embrace this, that salvation may not just be some nebulous thing that we believe with our minds, but may be a life-altering reality that we feel in our hearts and act on with our lives. Lord, for those here that have never put their trust in you, I pray that you may hear them, that you may hear them expressing that they need you to save them from their sin, that you're their only hope, that they want you to save them, and that they're trusting in you to do what they can't do for themselves. Lord, hear that from all of us too. We want to be your people being shaped for your purposes. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.